Dear listener, thank you for joining us again on Scraps. I'm Arun Sridhar and I'm joined by my co-host Jojo Plant. We are here to bring you some of the most fascinating discussions on science and technology and some of the behind the scenes stories that don't make it to the journal publications and conference presentations. Before we get started today, we would like to ask you to share the love. Please share Scraps with your friends and colleagues and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Consider it your early Christmas present to us and in return we'll keep bringing you these hopefully interesting podcast episodes. Looking back at your first Google search in 1998 or maybe your first Facebook post in 2004, could you have guessed that these sites would have more personal information about you than perhaps some of your closest friends and family? What began as benign tools for reference and communication have become subjects of regulatory hearings, while simultaneously making our lives run more smoothly and offering content and suggestions based on the information that you knowingly and willingly provide. But if we knew then what we know now, that our thoughts, our feelings, triumphs, hardships, schedules, food preferences, exercise performance, or perhaps lack thereof in my case, our dating preferences, and everything that flows from your fingertips to our keyboards would be collected and commoditized, would you willingly sign up, open your heart and mind and say, yes, please, please take my data. Today we are on the next horizon of what it means to be human. Where do thoughts become actions, and who owns those thoughts if we willingly plug in? I have no personal opinion yet about this. In fact, I'm woefully ignorant about the finer points of ethics and neurotechnology. All I know is that we need to have this conversation now so that we're not trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube several years from now. To that end, we've invited two particularly interesting guests today. We have Lauren Sankari and Paul Ford the Associate Director and Program Director, respectively, of Cleveland Clinic's Neuroethics Program. Thank you both for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Maybe um, both of you could give us a little bit of background on on your experience in the field before we jump in. Uh, Lauren? Sure. So I, I just finished uh, one of the first um, fellowships funded by the NIH Brain Initiative to study ethical issues uh, in brain device research. Um, so I am finishing with a, a, a newer set of training um, as a neuroethicist. Um, and I work as a, as a full-time clinical ethicist at the, the Cleveland Clinic. Um, before going into ethics, I studied rhetoric at UC Berkeley, um, which helped me understand uh, really some of the power that, that words have uh, in shaping how we relate to each other and our, our shared and individual experiences. Um, and I also have a background in law, which um, get, introduced me to some of the, the important work of, of defining our, our basic rights and some of the minimum obligations that we have to one another. Um, so that's some of the, the background I bring to my work in neuroethics. Thanks. How about, how about you, Paul? Tell us why we should be listening to you. So for the last 20 years, I have been helping patients and families and healthcare providers, uh, researchers with tough decisions, uh, dilemmas that they face in both their practice and their research. And very early on in my time, I received a ethics consult 
from an operating room. And on the other end of the line was a neurosurgeon who said, my patient is telling me to stop the surgery. We're four hours in. What do I do? And my first question was, why did you wake him up, put him back to sleep like he's supposed to be, and and this isn't an ethics issue? He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Deep brain stimulation is this thing that we do while awake, and we have to have the participation of the, the patient, and uh, it's really been emerging. What do I do? Do I listen to the patient now or listen to the, the patient's desires before? I'm sort of doing stuff with the brain. Is that affecting who he is and what his authentic decisions are? Uh, can you just give me an easy answer? Of course, I said, no, I can't give an easy answer. Um, and so that, in some ways, marked my, uh, my first introduction to really complicated neuroethics. And subsequent to that, I've fielded many calls from various neurosurgeons. In fact, this past weekend, a neurosurgeon called me up and said, I have this really tough emergency case. I just need to bounce it off someone to, to make sure that I'm thinking through all the ramifications of what it means to run, rush this person to emergency surgery, to their lives, who they are, what it means to be human, uh, and can you do so in the next minute or five? So <laughs> these are real-life problems, and as our neurotechnology increases, I think that we are increasingly faced with these fundamental questions of which things do we develop and what kinds of things are most important to us. So both of you are part psychologists, part counselors, and part performance coaches then? With a dash bartender. <laughs> I would say all of those uh, th those things apply. The, uh, uh, Lauren had mentioned her background. I forgot to mention I did a math and computer science undergraduate. And so uh, hung out with a lot of engineers and uh, went to do ethics and technology and society and did a PhD in philosophy and thought medical ethics was a better way to help than ethics and technology. And very soon after uh, starting, I got that phone call and I was back into ethics and technology, but this time in medicine. That is a fantastic story. And I think not many people would be able to say that a surgeon called them while the patient was on table and they wanted advice. Um, that's great. So can you actually walk us through at this point of time, because you work for the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the most premier institutions in the world, and the type of cases, etc. What are the various areas that you cater to, um, where you provide input into ethics? And especially when we talk about neuroethics, uh, can you just give us the spectrum of patients that you uh, that you input into? Sure. So Paul and I are, are embedded um, uh, most in, in two centers within the Cleveland Clinic, our uh, epilepsy center and our center for neurorestoration, um, which provides, uh, which, which is the group of clinicians uh, who offer deep brain stimulation um, for, for clinical indications. So we meet with a subset of, of patients who undergo surgery, neuros these elective neurosurgical procedures. Um, in order to, to help tease out what's, what is most important to that individual patient and does that align with, uh, with a, a treatment that, we can rec that the, the clinical team can recommend to that patient. Um, so we, we also sit in on, on meetings where neurosurgeons and a multidisciplinary group of clinicians discuss whether, whether an individual patient 
is a is a strong candidate for um, undergoing this elective neurosurgical procedure, um, and we provide some ethics guidance in those conversations, uh, and then and then go more into to almost an interview with patients to help understand their values and their goals and and explore whether that aligns with the treatment options in front of them. In addition to those um, places where we're really embedded uh, on a week-to-week basis, uh, we also help out with uh, uh, the Dementia Center, our brain health group. Uh, Lauren has helped with a number of uh, cases where there was questions about uh, brain donation. Uh, we help with uh, data safety and monitoring boards, uh, particularly uh, with, with, with complicated cases where we're unsure whether the, the safety and the, uh, the data justifies moving forward. Uh, we help patients sometimes consent for tough uh, research protocols with lots of uncertainty. We help in the stroke area. Um, we teach residents and, uh, and uh, other trainees. Um, really uh, try to help out and be integrated in each of the aspects of research, clinical practice, as well as uh, education. That is great to hear, Paul. Thank you so much for explaining that because I think our listeners um, would love to kind of see the spectrum of the areas that you're working in. That's fantastic. So now tell us about, you kind of hit upon a few of those points about you giving inputs into into treatment protocols and into what the options are from both a physician or surgeon perspective and the patient perspective. So now tell us, if we just go one level deeper, tell us about what does that entail? And let's just probably pick one disease area or one particular therapeutic option. And if you can just unpick it for us as to what it means um, from from an ethics perspective. And I assume all of these involves medical devices or external external systems to augment in certain ways, the pathological function that these patients are ultimately undergoing surgery for. So, with that kind of with that kind of level setting, uh, could you just tell us a bit more about what are the considerations if we go one level deeper than that? That'll be fantastic to hear from all, both of you. So, Lauren, maybe uh, uh, I'd propose we we use uh, deep brain stimulation for uh, interventions that have a strong behavioral as well as uh, a biological component like uh, the uh, DBS for depression studies, the pain study, the uh, stroke study, th- these things that are, are complicated. How Do you think that would be a good place for a start? Yeah, that would be awesome. So, so in the context of, of deep brain stimulation for for these um, more novel indications or investigational uh, uses of deep brain stimulation, um, Paul and I sometimes are supporting uh, clinicians and and patients in in deciding whether or not it's appropriate to to consider deep brain stimulation in in an off label uh, context. Um, so what, one example would actually be uh, deep brain stimulation for Tourette syndrome um, for patients who have. Uh, severe tics that have not responded to, to medication that they've tried over a number of years and behavioral interventions. Um, at, at times, the, the team is wondering whether or not to consider uh, offering offering deep brain stimulation outside of a research protocol um, for for a patient who needs help um, and uh, and is at the point of wanting to consider neurosurgical intervention. And then, when when we're working in a research context. 
Uh, one role that we have is we're, we serve as, as consent monitors in, in research protocols for early phase brain device research. Um, if you take a first in human study, um, for instance, a study of deep brain stimulation uh, for stroke recovery, um, uh, we serve as, as uh, kind of external members of, of the research team who can um, oversee the informed consent process. We meet separately with each research participant to uh, more deeply understand their motivations for enrolling in a study like this and to make sure that their, their goals in, in being involved in research align with what this research intervention has to offer. You know, one of the things that is beautiful about the two examples that Lauren has given is there are examples where we can be involved as early on as, as you can imagine in helping to construct the, uh, the protocol, the potential intervention, right to the end in the follow-up. Uh, one of the things that we particularly pay attention to are the biases. We talk about systemic biases and and the uh, kinds of challenges and assumptions we make that are baked into sometimes our uh, our work. And as semi-outsiders, we, we get a chance to sometimes press our colleagues to, to rethink uh, aspects. For instance, in Tourette's, uh, oftentimes there are uh, coexisting uh, mental health disorders. And early on in DBS, there was this assumption that anyone with moderate to severe depression can't uh, provide consent themselves or are vulnerable just because they have uh, co-occurring uh, uh, co um, mental health issue. And we're able to challenge this and, and challenge it sometimes with data. And uh, in the case of, of depression, we have good data saying that people can still consent for themselves. But these are the kinds of biases in, in all of these well-meaning investigators and clinicians. Sometimes they forget that we make leaps and jumps that we, we uh, think are obvious, and we help bring to the surface the ways in which uh, some people need more protection and some people need less protection because it's intrusive on who they are. I think that's fascinating. And I was actually going to, I'm glad you answered it that way because I was going to ask the same uh, question really about dementia is the perception is that a person with dementia, depending on the stage, may not be able to um, provide consent. Um, and and I think that that kind of naturally leads us to another area, which is so much of the research that we're talking about here is in the um, area of treatment or diagnosis or prevention of disease. And as soon as you build the tools to address those issues, um, those tools can just as easily migrate over into the augmentation field with or without the intent to do so. So where, I, I think if, if that's the case, we need to be prepared for that to be an outcome. And how should we be looking at preparing ourselves as a field in the research field for um, some of the the blind spots that we may not know about on the on the technology side. What should we be looking for in the ethical side? In the ethics side, you've picked a topic that has incredibly interesting gray zones, and just like consent, where we want a either yes they are capacitated or no they're not. We uh, these are fallacies, legal fallacies for some purposes. We need to uh, uh, have, but for others, we need to really grasp the the uncertainties and the grayness. So um, particularly two concepts that, that might be important that, to get clear on are things that uh, why we value restoration 
right? Restorative properties. I used to be this smart. And now as I'm older, I'd like to restore it. And we seem to contrast that to, I somehow want to be more than what I am right now or ever could be as, as different. So why do we value restorative procedures? It's okay to restore my elbow if I'm a pitcher to, uh, you know, get a Tommy John surgery to throw it faster. But people look skeptical if I want to have the surgery in order to uh, just throw the ball faster than what I could otherwise. Uh, the other concept is uh, normal, normalcy, to be normal, average. Uh, why is it that we have the bias that it is okay for us to get people up to normal? Uh, but if you're already normal, that it's not okay to, to improve uh, oneself. Th- these are f- foundational to, uh, to our understanding. We, we need to discard the, uh, the sports analogies. Uh, Performance-enhancing drugs in sports is largely an artifact of fair competition. And it says that life is a competition. And really, uh, we could think of life often as much more collaborative. How can we thrive as human beings? So every single technology comes back to that point for me. You know, there's a film, I Am Human, which I at first uh, has a wonderful opening that uh, that's like science fiction. And then it goes on to tell the human stories of people with neuro devices in them, right? How does each technology help us be more who we want to be as human beings and interacting with one another in a society? And that question of, which traits are okay to make better and how we spend resources on it comes back to that, uh, that point. Well, cosmetic surgery could just as easily be an analogy as sports is. I mean, I think sports is where we commonly fall, but um, let's face it, the number of elite athletes in the world is pretty relatively small, but the number of people who have cosmetic surgery in order to fit in or feel more like who they think they they really are on the inside and, and putting that back on the outside. I think that's, and that's a multi-billion dollar market and it's becoming more and more acceptable. I don't know if that plays into your, in, into a way we can look at this too. Well, I think cosmetic surgery kind of brings together the, the individual goals that goals and values that patients might have or individuals might have. And then the, the shared values of a medical community who needs to determine, is it within the scope of, of the goals of medicine as, as uh, healthcare professionals might, might view those goals? Um, I, I think one of the, the most important things to, to think about when we are talking about augmentation or, or neuroenhancement is, um, is that we need to, to really explore what are the side effects or, or trade-offs that we might overlook when we augment certain capacities. Um, we, we might not be aware of the psychosocial consequences or not be perfectly able to anticipate exactly what impact uh, what, what we're calling enhancement might have. Um, and, and it may only be that we can detect those over a longer period of time. Uh, so to me, just like with, with any uh, new, new medical intervention, when we're talking about enhancement, I think we, we need to really explore what, 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 what might we be giving up um, in order to, to gain what benefit. So Jojo and Arun, I'd like to turn the tables on you for a minute. Um, you know, you interview a lot of people. Uh, there's a, uh, another assumption that, uh, that needs to be challenged, uh, a pair of assumptions, really. And that is, is the normal, we'll quote, normal brain already optimized in its pathways? And so we already have an optimized system. Um, and uh, 
uh, is it then in a corollary perhaps is, um, is any enhancement of one circuit or system uh, going to be a net zero gain that, uh, that it has to come out of cost of another? How do you weigh in on those two assumptions or, or do you, do you think those are interesting? I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to say I'm flattered that you even think I'm anywhere close to normal because nobody's ever accused me of that before. <laughs> I think on the on the scientific side, I mean, are are normal brains optimized? I think that's a great question, and probably Arun, you're you're more equipped to answer that one than I am. Yeah, I think optimization depends on various situations that we find ourselves in. So I think I think Paul kind of has picked out a very interesting kind of conundrum that 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 the field is kind of exploring or is on the cusp of exploring at this point of time, because. Um, the honest answer is, uh, I don't know. I don't believe that a human brain is optimized at any given point. Um, I think people learn new skills and therefore part of what they're doing to serve a particular purpose can be optimized and can be optimized even further. Um, but the question is, and from an ethical perspective, is that does it actually require more traditional kind of learning methods or does it actually require an artificial augmentation method is something that I don't um, necessarily uh, at this point of time have enough data to comment on. And that's why I think it's important to have this discussion. So the, the goal is really not to kind of get to an answer, but really just to highlight what are the things, considerations that, that, that both of you actually have to encounter in your daily life. and then with that perspective, is, I think we've kind of come to an interesting kind of stage where we've crystallized that most of your, your daily jobs at this point of time is really about restorative therapies for improvement uh, of symptoms uh, due to a neurological disease where an existing device has already been approved and that can be used in an investigational study or uh, in a compassionate used purpose by a consideration by a specific surgeon who is looking to implant it into a patient and you want to ensure that there is alignment of expectations and, and values on both sides to enable an efficient outcome uh, for the patient and, 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 and for the condition that they are experiencing. Is that, is that a fair assessment before I ask you the next question, Paul and Lauren? So certainly much of your... Uh... Um, uh, of the most important work on a day-to-day basis that's going to have an immediate effect is exactly that. Yeah, fantastic. So I, I think that is the reason why I kind of said that is because the field of neuromodulation um, is especially deep brain stimulation uh, and to a certain extent spinal cord stimulation has gone or is moving towards a more data-driven um, kind of closed loop uh, aspects of understanding and improving the therapy. At least that's the point, uh, or that is the cost that most some of the companies that we know of in the space are driving to, which is, can we acquire data, to your point, Paul, about a, a, a circuitry that has been modified in disease? Can we change that or can we restore that to a homeostatic balance uh, through electrical stimulation? And then now, can we optimize that particular aspect of 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 modification uh, that we do it in what would people call as an open loop fashion can that be better using a closed loop methodology where the data basically tells 
the implant um, pulse generator when it should be turning on the stimulation or when not, or can it actually enable outcome assessment uh, from the patient, etc. So that's where the data kind of flows back from the patient over to a computer or through the implant to, uh, to, to actually back to the physician to actually assess this for research purposes or for therapeutic purposes, right? So I think with that baseline in mind, I think there is, and, and this is where I think the analogy between the, the internet companies and, and actually the augmentation systems in, in neuromodulation kind of clouds the picture. And I think this is an interesting area to pick on with both of you, which is as data is coming through, is being acquired, what is your view on how this data should be handled? And is there any aspect of, of ethics and privacy that we should be actively thinking about um, to start with, and then we can go into the details of that. Sure. So, uh, in in the experience that I have in, in kind of the the bedside clinical applications of these technologies, um, what I've observed is that that uh, while closed loop um, devices such as responsive neurostimulation, which is FDA FDA approved in the treatment of of epilepsy. Um, there, there are enhancements. The the fact that the the machine is is learning, um, and that patients may um, gain increased benefit or increased seizure control over time due to to that learning system. Uh, I've found that, that there are these there are some practical and ethical challenges um, that that are actually introduced by the, the closed loop um, uh, system. Um, for instance, there are new interdependencies uh, that the closed loop approach introduces. Uh, you, you might be depending on a patient um, uploading data about uh, the number of seizures they have. Uh, so that requires that patient um, to, have a, a, to have internet access, to be aware of when they have had a seizure, um, or to have family support uh, to help them uh, record when they've had, had seizures and upload that so that uh, neurologists and, and the programmers working with them uh, can, can optimize the device to detect and, and prevent seizures. Um, so this this actually creates some some challenges where patients who lack social support um, or who who may have some short term memory loss after a seizure uh, uh, may struggle to to report that that information and and then that actually creates a, a vulnerability where if they have a system like this implanted uh, and and we're not able to uh, to communicate that data in an effective way um, then then they might have a device that's really not optimized. Uh, to their con- condition. Paul, are there any other observations you've had about the difference? You know, I, I very much like the uh, social justice issues that you're pointing to, um, you know, access. The uh, the other big thing that Arun had uh, pointed to is this big data question, right? Uh, with AI and other kinds of methods of sifting through data and creating new meanings from kind of data, you now often, like in the uh, neural pace, you have huge amounts of electrical recordings of brains archived on commercial servers, uh, company servers, with very little uh, discussion with patients about how that uh, that data will be used in the future, what it means if uh, it can be go back and reinterpreted to have new meanings or can tell you different things about either your healthcare or about your brain states at different times. Um, I guess I have a fundamental 
uh, value uh, that you know at least we need to be transparent in terms of buyer beware, right? The uh, when when somebody is going to have my brainwaves archived, I should at least know and be fully aware that there's uncertainty and uh, how that's going to proceed and how long it's been and the emphasis on on the lack of knowing what it could hurt or help me in the future. And so uh, I think that there is need for a much bigger dialogue on saying, what does this data mean? Do I really know I'm contributing to a huge data set that may be profitable to others? And what's the status of that brain recording? Is that mine like a specimen that I, uh, like a biological specimen that I, I donate or give away? Or is it something even more personal about who I am that, uh, that I'm agreeing to give away. So this, this kind of goes into what is an idea on its own? What is, um, where's the value? And, and this, I think goes back to Lauren, some of your background in law, there's real property, there's chattel, there are different levels of, of importance, um, portability, and um, drawing the line of what is mine and what am I, what becomes public domain. So where does government sort of fit into this in terms of regulation and enforcement? I think it's important to realize that, that uh, law and regulation aren't going to be able to keep up the way that uh, the, the law, you know, undertakes defining um, really difficult to define rights uh, and the way that we've defined privacy um, is based on on outdated technology often, and and I think regulation is um, is often a more reactive tool. I think that there there are uh, potentials in in these uh, technological advancements that a, a regulator likely isn't going to be able to anticipate. Um, so I, I think that in some ways we we are depending on. Uh, on, on the technologists and um, clinician scientists uh, to, to uh, help regulators understand what what potential this technology actually has um, in order to to, tr- to try to develop uh, ethical safeguards and legal safeguards to prevent um, misuse or, or negative effects for the public. And in this case, I think the pa- there's power in the institutions, researchers, and professional societies. You think back... Um, about the stance of many institutions early on with institutional review boards, where they said as institutions, we will no longer sign contracts or approve research at our institution unless we can be assured that we'll control the data to, to publish the published data, no matter what the, the results are. The, the, we will no longer cede control of, of important data to health, health data, that, uh, and we won't bury results any longer. Right, that that was a powerful move a number of years ago, to uh, to say uh, we as researchers believe that there are certain things that science demands of us. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I mean, the IRBs are really great, and one of my favorite things is who will guard the guards themselves, and so that's sort of a step towards at least establishing a set of guardians. Um, and Lauren, to your point about about our field informing government because they're not experts in these areas. Um, but some of the, some of the testimony that's been given so far 
has primarily been given by the companies with some of the biggest interests in the outcome, which are going to be Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Um, I, I, I think we need to make sure that collectively, like Paul said, our institutions and society step up and, and um, demand a seat at the table too. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. And I actually want to provide an example here because I was really piqued by um, what Paul actually said with with respect to kind of what type of data can actually come out. So, for example, the Neuropace system that Paul referred to is actually a closed-loop epilepsy treatment system that is implanted and the goal is to kind of intervene as soon as the epilepsy is identified which is the data that it collects uh, not that there is any issue with the system but one of the other things in a research setting as people go with much higher resolution electrodes and much higher channel counts etc the refinement in the information that they get from some of the brain regions can we don't know what that potential could actually be. And that's why we are having this conversation. And Paul made a point about, we don't know what type of, is it just a disease-specific data that, that kind of flows through? Or will there be any aspect of of the state of mind or other things that would be hidden beyond just the disease data that the that is interested in? So in that case, there should be considerations of of, of who owns the data is really the question that is still out in the open. Um, and the other example from the genomic side is the 23andMe, uh, which most people will know about the whole genotyping kind of ancestral tree, a genealogical service that has been provided. Um, and there, I think the patient gets their genotyping data, uh, but then they don't retain control over how that data is ultimately sifted through and ultimately used and and kind of sold to identify patterns in disease modification etc to various pharmacological companies except pharmaceutical companies etc so the question back to both of you um, and maybe paul you can lead on this one is who controls the data so if it's disease modifying data for example in the case of epilepsy we completely understand but then if there is anything beyond just of interest with respect to treating epilepsy, for example, let's just take that example. If there's any other information beyond that, what should be the stance that that I think moving forward that people should be carefully considering um, as they move forward towards looking at the situation, analyzing the situation and proactively addressing it from all sides uh, so that there is a better outcome for everybody? I think that genetics is exactly the right place to uh, to look to as it really evolved. Uh, you know, larger genetic studies and larger genetic programs will have processes where they inform patients clearly that there may be one more than one meeting to this uh, genetic test. On a certain uh, interval, these will be reanalyzed to see if there are any clinically meaningful results. Uh, so, again, I, I think it moves towards saying... Uh, Patients and clinicians and researchers should be made aware of under what conditions that they're signing over the data, and so that people can choose individually whether that is 
an okay processor or not. It becomes very, very challenging when there's only one device of a certain type. And now the only way to get the device is to agree to whatever the data use is. And that's where where it uh, gets trickier when you don't have a open market, when there's a monopoly on uh, on that kind of thing. Lauren, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I guess from from my perspective, uh, I, th- I think that we we can't leave this. Uh, we can't really just trust that that patients or or individuals using these devices um, can protect their their own interests. Um, and and I don't think regulators are, are well positioned. Uh, but I I do think particularly as as some of these questions are are answered at least in the setting of healthcare that that might serve as a guide for the the tech industry um, to understand how to what degree people own uh, this kind of data. So Lauren, the, uh, uh, we've talked a lot about the data and ownership. I know you've done a lot of work in thinking about what uh, ownership and what the status is of these devices when they're actually in someone's head. You know, when they're outside, they belong to the company or the, the doctor or someone. But once they get fully implanted, whether it be B- uh, brain-computer interface, BCI, or DBS, or neuro or uh, neurostimulation, uh, what kinds of ethics issues do you see arise when, uh, when that thing is in my head and I may or may not be owning or leasing or however you might think of it? And this is still an, an unanswered question, despite all of the, the research currently going on in implanted brain devices, there still is an open question about uh, at, at the end of a clinical trial, whether somebody, uh, whether a, a participant in that trial has has the right to decline surgery to have that, that device explanted. Certainly there's a right to bodily integrity and uh, a surgeon would need consent to remove that device. Um uh, surgically, at least. Uh, so, so there is at least um, some practical sense in which people have some right to continued use, but it's unclear whether that extends to a right to to have a sponsor pay for a battery replacement uh, once the the battery expires for that device. Um, and there are questions about who should be financially responsible for um, for surgical explant of the device if there's an infection or if at some point uh, the the device. Uh, the patient and, and a clinician decide that it's best to have that device removed. And um, so those continue to be unanswered questions. Um, it's a topic I'm exploring using qualitative methods to try to understand how uh, participants think about devices uh, when they're involved in, in brain implant research and how they experience the process of exiting from research, which um, is, is a transitional time where people are reflecting on their entire experience uh, being in research um, and and often have very strong feelings about whether they'd like to to continue to have access to that device uh, or whether it's time to have it explanted. So what is the impression of the patients? Do they actually want to pay themselves or the insurance to pay for it, or would they actually want the actual manufacturer to pay for it? Because I think, again, from both perspectives, it can be argued either ways. Uh, so... From your research, can you tell us a bit more about what you found, or is it still ongoing that you kind of talk about it, Lauren? Uh, at least from my my preliminary findings, um, I think it's clear that at a minimum, participants want clarity on that question: whose responsibility is it? Um, can can I trust that that sponsor um, will will actually follow through on what they they tell me they'll do at the beginning of a of a clinical trial or when I'm initially enrolling in research? Um, and, and 
my sense is from from some of the participants I spoke to, they're less concerned about who is taking responsibility for that. You know, I think they might be comfortable if their health insurer said you've you've contributed to a really important aspect of of research. You're contributing to generalizable knowledge and enhancing public health in some way by participating in research. Um, if if there were mechanisms through insurance to cover uh, the follow-up care, I imagine um, that that might be comfortable. But often, because it it requires su- such subspecialized clinical care to get follow-up in these investigational for these investigational devices, uh, the participant needs to really trust the research team um, who they're they're undertaking uh, these risks with. Well, I was going to say there's a, a sort of second thread of this that, uh, and, and bear with me for a moment because. Uh, um, there was a movement uh, prompted by um, farmers um, related to their tractors and their inability to repair it themselves because of contracts for companies, right? So we have these legislation and this movement to say we should be able to repair machinery uh, and on our own, and that shouldn't void the warranty and shouldn't uh, we should be able to do that. So now translating that to brain devices, is there a right, a natural right, to self-repair or self-modify devices that are in my head or is this beyond what uh, uh should i be able to be sued or lose my warranty on this brain device if i try to program it myself or or hack it or modify it but it's me in my head where do we place the value either the value of me as an individual controlling whatever's in my 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 control in my body or the protection from the uh, the companies for both to have a lucrative line of repair uh, and updating uh, um, money stream or the avoidance of liability. So isn't that actually covered in a fact that most of the firmware that controls the the patient programmer or the is locked to from the patients being able to do anything and it's always the remit of programming is left to the physician programmers that comes with these with these neuromodulation, especially deep brain stimulation devices, etc. So why is that even a consider? I'm always very curious about why this consideration is coming right now, because I assume that all medical devices is locked from a very limited functionality to patients. And it's a physician's job to modify the parameters as they see fit in terms of of justifying it from a scientific perspective and assessing patient outcomes as a result of that. But I would argue quickly just that just because it's locked doesn't mean that you can't get in. Um, The average person probably is not going to hack a brain device, but anything that can be engineered can be reverse engineered. So with enough motivation, um, one, even if the firmware is locked, somebody can still get in. And, and why is it that, uh, that I should be at the mercy of whichever clinician researcher I happen, happen to be on in their uh, their group as to what they think is a reasonable quality of life. There's a famous case. Uh, Denise uh, is a researcher in uh, in Europe where he wrote up a case where OCD study patients OCD scores weren't improving, but uh, described being much happier uh, with the device, the experimental device being on. And he felt it was his obligation to turn it off because he said the the study was only about OCD symptoms. It wasn't about improvement of of uh, of life, right? So that was controversial. But in, 
and I, I love your point that these things can be hacked by, you know, getting controllers on eBay's and patients are given more and more control anyway. Often they're given one or two or three settings that they themselves can control or an on off. So they're already given some control. So that opens up the, uh, the, the whole door to say, how much is a collaboration and how much is uh, one person or another person's control? So what's the conclusion to that or how should we approach it? We want you to just give us answers. <laughs> That's what we want. We we'll let you guys be the smart ones. We just. So, so I want one answer is, is there are public safety concerns? Yeah. Right. You, you want to make sure that uh, uh, things are safe and reliable. And we, we cede some of our liberties for those, uh, those uh, concerns. Um, but also we should be cognizant of, which kind of things are we have a bias against patients making their own choices and whether we, there are sometimes a sort of puritanical view of, of what, uh, uh, what happiness and, and uh, um, effort uh, involves our, our judgments. So I think what we're definitely in neurotechnology device development. We're in the wild west. We're kind of making our own rules as we go along. And for the most part, I think our community is really open and, and willing to and excited about embracing the ethical concerns. But we're also trying to figure out how to make this work. And part of that is the business case. Any investor wants to see how are you taking this to market and how are you getting paid for it? And one of the things that I frequently see, um, I haven't seen it adopted yet, but it's definitely an, an area of interest is a subscription-based model. So, or, or um, a prescription-based model where there's a recurring payment. And so it, with an implanted device, all of a sudden, you, if you've got a subscription model and you've got a patient who can't pay or won't pay, I mean, that's got to be a a big area for concern too. How, how do I mean that, that we need to know now if that is such a huge hurdle that a, uh, a pay as you go model would kill us as an industry, ethically speaking. I think in, in legal doctrine, what, what you might be thinking about is, is unequal bargaining power um, certainly. And, and the kind of, uh, reliance that that people who uh, depend on these devices or, or that subscription uh, for relief from symptoms, um, especially, I, I don't think you can warn somebody about uh, how it might feel to lose to lose some benefit or some improvement to their quality of life uh, that that they haven't yet experienced. Um, so I, I don't think that that um, the answer would would be. I don't think even if we disclose quite a bit about that subscription and those costs um, that, that we can ask people to, to um, sign away the other right to maintain some of the benefit they might get from, from a device. But, but you raised something that I hadn't uh, entertained until you mentioned subscription. Um, I often think about uh, medicine as what's the uh, basic floor that everyone deserves. So you may have picked up on my Canadian accent, the out and about, uh, you know, the floor at which the Canadian society says every person gets this floor is very different than what the American society says. Every, everyone deserves this floor. In the United States, everyone who goes to emergency room is, is uh, given uh, stabilizing emergency care, whether they can pay for it or not. 
right? That, that's, a, that's a floor. So in, where, what is that connection with what you're saying is it just struck me as what if we, somebody proposed, we'll do a subscription, but you can have the basic version, you know, without paying your subscription, but we have a premium version. So we'll stop your tremor enough to that you can button your shirt. But if you want to eat soup for park, uh, patients with Parkinson's, then you get the premium. Adi- you know, you could think of some cut lines. It's 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 a it's it's a basic human condition to be able to walk, but to be able to dance, you have to own the uh, the premium. Uh, and that that <laughs> Jojo, you like that? Some people just can't dance. Period, <laughs> and I'm one of them. So, and it's, and it's a very interesting point as well. And I think it basically shows uh, about how we need to actively think about it. And again, I'm not looking for answers, but this is really to highlight some of the issues. For example, the subscription-based model can also be thought of like your mobile phone bill, where you use more data, you pay for more data. Similarly, if there was an outcomes-based subscription model, which is the fact that and which most health insurance companies do to they give people a wearable they make they measure things and they see if t- things tend in the right way and then the premiums stay where they are if things are if somebody is not exercising as much or if there are things that are right then they basically things change or they get a warning and then they get a few points and then once that goes beyond a certain the premiums start decreasing so there's an incentive for the patient to take control of their own health there but then if you extrapolate that to the other extreme, which is if somebody has fulminant disease uh, or severe disease and they actually have to get more um, kind of stimulation. And if you go through a subscription-based model, then the person who is more ill ends up paying more cost to the provider uh, or the maker of, of, the, of the service, which unfortunately we're not there yet. Um, and rather thankfully we're not there yet because everybody pays for the device and it's a one-time cost and it's basically what happens with the maintenance of the device and ultimately people will have to change the battery but in a world where big data and neural data becomes a commodity in the future this is one aspect where I think we need to actively think about it and people need to be aware of what this is and that brings me to a very, very interesting point, which is, are there different concerns given that most people wear a tracker through their Apple Watch or Fitbits or Garmin's or whatever in today's world? And that in certain cases are also allowed to monitor. And in certain cases, there are companies out there that are actually looking to close the biomarkers on their neurostimulation devices to improve efficacy or to short or improve the battery life so that the battery can last longer, etc. Multiple views on that. So the question is, is there different type of concerns to between implantable devices and wearables? Because each of them provide different levels of data, if you think about it at this point of time, but they could be providing an entirely different level of data in the future. So what should we be thinking of from an, from an ethics perspective, uh, Paul and Lauren? So you've really uh, hit on two important uh, um, new aspects. One, uh, you pushed at the very beginning about neurobehavioral neuroethics, particularly nudges and how much we can uh, get of preferences and scanning, and uh, which is a great topic. But the, the second one, I think, hinges a great deal on 
the wearable being uh, a wearable brain device or just a wearable activity? Because for me, my, my, my standard wearable heart uh, uh, activity step uh, watch, you can you can ascertain a great deal about how I'm active and the kinds of things I'm doing through the day. But it doesn't quite get at that same thing than if I had a wearable EEG cap on that was bre- reading brain waves and you were trying to extrapolate uh, uh, internal states. And that way, I think it might be different. What do you think, Lauren? I think even the way you might think about the zone of privacy um, could be different there, where um, there are certain things about your your activity that are observable to other people that we're used to not having complete privacy over. Um, but we might have different expectations of, of privacy uh, and it, to me, it's, it's less a matter of, of whether it's a surgically implanted device um, and, and more a function. I mean, s- surgery imposes greater, uh, there, there's some risks associated with surgery. Um, and it, it complicates questions about whether to, uh, to discontinue use um, of that device or to decide you, you no longer want to sacrifice some aspect of your privacy um, if, if you're talking about an implant where a wearable, you can you can choose you can make an easier decision um, to to discontinue using using a wearable, and I think that that changes the architecture of, of decision making in, in important ways and and the distribution of risks as well. And, and you can almost see the trends emerging. I mean, this is actually a real world example that's ongoing at this point of time uh, in in business here, um, especially in the U.S. where in the world of Peloton subscriptions, which is a well-established company, there is also performance trackers on a subscription-based model with a company like Whoop, W-H-O-O-P, which actually does not act like an Apple Watch. It basically just tracks and it improves. Um, it's mostly used by performance athletes and, and, and performance training folks. Um, but Amazon has a competitor uh, product, competitive product that's just launched. And one of the big kind of battle that I've been following in, in the new space, um, et cetera, is really about the fact that one company, uh, which is Whoop, claiming that all of their data that they acquire from their patients is really secure and it's only used to improve performance for that particular athlete. It's not in any way used for a population-based assessment, whereas there is they claim that the other competitor which is amazon will probably not be doing that and therefore based on the history of everything this should be a better product so there are commercial arguments and business arguments that are being based on such facts and i think i only ask this question because this is something i think that we need to be aware as as things the area moves from therapeutic neuromodulation or therapeutic bioelectronic medicines to augmentative kind of um, modalities. And I think it's going to be an interesting thing to follow and potentially for more people to get involved, uh, like the way you guys do. But but hopefully we'll, we'll kind of, we'll see where the field goes and, and we'll be able to have a follow-up conversation and things evolve as well. But I just wanted to kind of highlight that to the listeners as well, that anything that pertains to data it just not just non-neural biomarker data as it's happening with wearables can also happen with with an implantable neural system especially if a system as it is claimed by a few companies which has a higher density recordings and more data is being transferred off from the patient and will be used to ascertain what will happen 
in, without knowing what data is coming out or what does the data purpose, what what purpose does the data really serve, um, etc. So it, it's a very interesting thing to follow, nevertheless. But I think you also want to uh, um, pay attention in each of these conversations about neurotechnology, that shift of language that I, I observe with you. Um, in your context, these are patients. And in the, uh, the performance athlete will, will say, I'm not a patient until I'm hurt. I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm a person. And you used athlete. But, but uh, if we frame all of these technologies as what we give to patients who have certain vulnerabilities, opposed to people who uh, are free agents and have fewer vulnerabilities potentially, or at least not the same ones as patients, then that, uh, that changes our dialogue. Absolutely. I completely agree to that. And, and and that's why I think it's important to differentiate between what you're currently dealing with, which is essentially therapeutic modalities and not necessarily augmentative modalities. And I think that's why I wanted to make it absolutely clear to the listeners that that's, that's the regular workload that you have to help patients uh, as the physicians are thinking of treating their disease condition. So thank you so much for, for actually saying that, uh, Paul. I think... We talked um, before this conversation, we had our little check-in and you mentioned something that was really, really fascinating to me. And I'm hoping that you'll elucidate once again on what exactly is neuroessentialism. Neuroessentialism is a, a term that's attributed to Adina Roskies and it, it describes the view that human experience can be explained by reference uh, to the brain and its activity. Um, so particularly when people are concerned about neuroessentialist positions, they're worried that, that in some way we're, we're reducing ourselves to our brains um, and to the, the functioning of our brains um, and perhaps uh, missing some of the important ways that, uh, that we're interconnected or that who we are is shaped by, by other, other organs, other factors in our lives than, than the functioning of our brains. So how do we address that as an issue in, and how do we determine where we start and end and how do we integrate that thinking into what researchers are, are seeking to, to do with neurotechnology? I think that, that part of, part of the obligation that, that we have is to, to explore, we can use qualitative methods and, um, and other approaches to, to really explore what's, what is important to people um, what values people have, what values we share, um, rather rather than making assumptions that um, that, uh, for instance, something about brain function um, inherently correlates to aspects of quality of life uh, for for um, every individual. Um, that that would be one approach that that I I would think about in terms of avoiding neuroessentialist assumptions. Um, Paul, do you, do you have any other thoughts on neuroessentialism? So a uh, closely related concept is neuroexceptionalism, where like with genetic exceptionalism, that we think there is something always unique when we start talking about brains. Now, there may be some unique things. Uh, I think the uh, essentialism wants to press us to say these networks, social networks that we, uh, we involve ourselves in uh, may have an emergent kind of intelligence that we may lose sight of um, if we just focus on an individual one one brain. We may be defined by the circumstances that surround us um, as much as the electrical circuits that are inside our inside us. 
And to me, especially in a clinical setting, part of uh, the, the form of except, exceptionalism that I buy into is just that disorders affecting the brain sometimes affect our ability to communicate our preferences uh, or what's most important to us. In that way, there, there sometimes are different challenges that arise in a, in a clinical setting um, that, that are part of what motivated me to try to get this sub-specialized expertise. Um, but, but I think that, that even that challenge um, about, about understanding what's most important to people can be overcome by, by really approaching people um, in, in a social network within their, uh, their social support um, and using shared decision-making processes um, to, help, to help make some of these tough decisions that we're facing in clinical settings. That's great to hear. Thanks for the explanation there, Paula and Lauren. Um, all of the work that you've actually done so far or the examples that you've provided are all with deep brain stimulation examples. Do you have similar type of, of considerations or debates that you've actually been engaged in, in outside the brain uh, with spinal cord stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation? Because neuromodulation is much more bigger than just deep brain stimulation, although the field originated from there, just wanted to kind of ask you if you've been part of that or if you're privy to any of those hot debates in those in those other areas outside the brain stimulation region. Sure, certainly um, uh, some of the research that uh, feeds in from the peripheral nerves to the central, uh, things like uh, sensation and experience of, uh, of the outside world, uh, proprioception, these kinds of things, particularly with those with uh, uh, damaged spinal cords. Uh, as well as uh, certainly the the pain issue, uh, those with pain. But uh, sensory uh, recovery is something that is largely uh, continues to emerge. And we've been thinking about the mechanical movement and these issues of what it means to sense the world around us. There's a researcher uh, locally who, uh, who has lovely research um, around the uh, uh, asking people, um, to describe certain kinds of sensations and the different kinds of words we uh, we use, uh, which helps us get at how we experience the world as much more than just uh, I think, therefore I am. I experience with all the nerve endings. In addition, uh, uh, we talked about DBS as a, a implantable device. There's also uh, magnetic stimulation and uh, direct current stimulation uh, that's transcranial. That, uh, that doesn't need to be inside the, the body, but still may, if we're not careful to, to evaluate, still may have uh, lasting effects. Just because it's outside the body doesn't mean that it's not serious and needs to be uh, carefully considered, whether it be electroconvulsive therapy or, or transmagnetic therapy. Uh, we don't want to get into the, uh, the wrong-headedness of thinking invasive and, and uh, non-invasive are the... Uh, uh, are equivalent to dangerous and not dangerous. Um, we need to think about the full spectrum of implications. That's that's right on at the point there. So th- thanks so much for Paul for actually saying that because just because something is not in the body, it doesn't necessarily mean that it actually doesn't have an ethics consideration. So point well taken. Um, are there, as people kind of work through research in neurotechnologies, both in, in the brain and more recently outside the brain into the peripheral nervous system, etc., are there key questions that that you would want to give as a message to the researchers, both 
clinical and non-clinical researchers that we should constantly be asking ourselves and thinking about ethics at every step? Sure. I think one of the, the first questions uh, to ask is, is, are we even asking the right questions? Um, or are we focused on uh, are our goals, um, whether it's in the scientific community or the medical community, aligned with the end users um, or the people who, who might have the most stake um, in, in advances uh, in, in this area of research? Um, so I, I think uh, developing ways to incorporate input, not just from, from uh, experts in the scientific or medical community, but also uh, uh, people who can represent um, the experiences and perspectives of, of patients or end users is an important issue to keep in mind. You know, I think the only thing to add to that would be to, to say, in the global sense, um, is this getting us further towards the uh, the enrichment of who we are as as humans, and who and are we contributing to flourishing? Uh, the first step is to alleviate suffering. But uh, each uh, technology, are we making lives better? I, I think that's that's a perfect way to cap this off. And and forgive my frustration. I, I have the personality type that I will do what you tell me to do. Just give me the answers in the back of the book. Um, but at the same time, I find these conversations to be fascinating. And honestly, if you had all day, I would probably keep you on all day. Take us down rabbit holes that don't need to be explored. Um, but thank you both so much, Lawrence and Curry and Paul Ford of Cleveland Clinic. We really appreciate having you on today. And um, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. We had, um, hopefully we have left people with a lot of considerations and open questions that people will keep an eye out for as, as the field progresses. Thank you so much. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.